This episode contains some strong language and reference to a violent crime. I'm Adrian Sykes, and this is episode four of Did You Know Pioneers, the podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the executives of colour who have led the way in the UK music business. Today we're joined by Tiny Temper, artist, entrepreneur and true pioneer. And as with the rest of my guests, I started by asking Tiny why it had to be the music business above all else. Here's what he had to say. Music for me is the soundtrack to life. It's something that I've always taken a, a keen interest in, like from as long as I can remember, as young as I, rem- I can remember. It's always something that has kind of like uh, resonated with me and it's always something that I felt um, excited by. I was one of those kids, bro, that was like, you know, on the like front page of the school prospectus. I was always like visible. I was always seen. I was always someone. I was in my school newspaper, you know, back when the O2 was called the Millennium Dome. There's 11 year old me not knowing one day I was going to perform in there, sell it out like a couple of times. But like, I always was just seen and known in my community. So I just felt like there was something waiting for me that was kind of, you know, like a, a high value type vocation, you know. I wasn't tall enough to play basketball, do you get what I mean? And it wasn't it wasn't really a thing here like that. So I think from when I saw like the So Solid crew, when I saw Oxide and Neutrino, when I started to see Roll Deep, the emergence of Roll Deep, Pay As You Go, it's something that I feel I was at an age where I questioned myself and I was like, do you think you can do this? And, you know, even though at that time, you know, people were literally like, no one was getting paid from it. Do you get what I mean? If anything, artists were paying to be a part of it. And um, yeah, I was one of those people as well. But I, I I literally thought to myself, this is something I can wake up and do every day. And whether or not I make anything from it, I'm going to be proud that I did it and I'm going to be happy. Um, and do I think I'm talented enough? And that's, you know, to be honest with you, another question I ask myself. And like I said, with football and basketball, no, that is the, that's, that's the honest answer. But with music, I was like, yeah, I think I am. And I think that I have the capabilities to take it further than what I can see now. You know, like how an inventor kind of looks at a product and goes, oh, you know, can this be improved or modified? That's kind of how I looked at music, black music, and not even all of black music in the UK, because there is some black music in the UK that's like untouchable. Big up Omar and Jonah Matradin and Billy Ocean and Gabrielle and all of these incredible like acts that I just grew up, you know, listening to and hearing on the radio and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I felt like I could make an impact in it. And that's why. Your parents have clearly been a major influence in your life. And it was really interesting reading your bio and you talk about them. So how influential have they been in terms of your journey? And how do they feel about their son taking on a career in the music business? They definitely had a vision for me that was going to be like education. Like he's going to go to a good college, which I did. He's going to go to an even better university, which I didn't. I didn't end up going to university. But I think they had that kind of like trajectory for me. He's I, I'm the oldest kid, oldest of four. So I think for them, I was going to be just a sensible kind of like educated son that goes off and has like, I don't know, a high flying job, five figures or whatever. And then I'm a good role model to my brothers and sisters. When I decided that I wanted to go down the musical route, um, I think at the time, like I said, because there wasn't really any, like we hadn't realized our value within like kind of black underground rap, you know, rap MC and type music. The value wasn't there. Um, I felt, I felt like my parents kind of saw it as like a hobby slash something that, you know, delinquents like something something that's more like delinquents you know what I mean you don't because at that time I got myself some not even sophisticated music equipment we had like a basic computer I went and got like a little mic from PC World like a little 19 pounds you know one of them long thin white ones yeah you can bend yeah. adjust yeah. all of that um and so at that point, I started having loads of my friends in my house, all from different backgrounds again. Some of them were smokers, some of them were not smokers. So I think with it came this crowd and came this sort of lifestyle. And my parents just thought, ah, oh, he's gone off the rails, he's going to be a delinquent, and then he's going to fail. Do you get what I mean? And so I tried to use the same kind of like faith that they had in me in kind of going down this kind of school route, university. Um, and I just applied myself in the same way that I wouldn't 
if I went to university. I guess once I got with my, once I linked up with my older cousin, who I guess made my parents feel a little bit more reassured, like, okay, if they're going to fail, they're going to fail together. Do you know what I mean? It's not just my son. My son can't be crazy. There's another person that's from our community, from our family that has the same vision. Maybe they're going to do something. And I think it wasn't until, you know, I missed university. I said I was going to do a gap year. Then the next year, um, I said I was going to do an extended gap year. And then I started getting all the abuse, you know, you're useless, you're a failure, all of that stuff. That's Nigerians and Africans are very hard like on their kids. You get what I mean? Especially, it all comes from a place of love, but I was getting it, trust me. And then I think once I got my first song, um, it wasn't the first song I released, but it was the first song I released on a major record label. And, you know, God was on my side. The line, the stars definitely lined up. That went straight to number one. So once that happened, I think my parents were just like, okay, you're obviously doing something good. People from our community that were their age started talking to them. I heard your son on the radio. I heard your son do an interview on Radio One or One Extra. Or this. And so then it started becoming more real. And I guess now they're very, very proud, you know. Listening to you talk, then I, I remember being with you guys, I think it was the year you won the Brit. And, and I can remember they, they used to have a party on the boat. They used to, EMI used to have a boat that they used to sail down the Thames. I can remember getting on the boat. And I remember vividly your mother and your father being on the boat. But I also remember, we should, we should pretend so I can remember how happy they were and how big their smiles were. If you're ever in any doubt that they were proud of what you've done, that was the moment where there was true validation. It was just something that came back into my head. It was a beautiful moment. I just wanted to replay it for you. I appreciate that, Adrian. And for me, it was so important to, to include them on the, on the journey from as early as possible. My mum and dad, they're my biggest advisors, you know, to a certain degree. My mum, her prayers, I believe they work. She said she one day, she always used to say to me, son, you're going to be bigger than Michael Jackson. This is not me saying I think in any way, shape or form that I'm even a smidge of the king of pop, <laughs> yeah. But lo and behold, I ended up getting more number ones than Michael Jackson in this country. Like it's only for me, it's only prayer that could make something like that happen because she knew what she was saying and she was manifesting it and it happened. And I also wanted, like, I'm so proud of my parents and I'm so proud of what they sacrificed for us. So I guess once I was moving into a world full of executives and like real business people and, you know, people that were able to, you know, give out checks that could change people's lives and do all of these different kind of things. Um, it was really important for one, them to meet my parents, you know, to know that I'm just not some kid from anywhere. Do you get what I mean? I've got a family. My mum and dad are together. They've worked hard to really raise me as a kid and raise all my siblings. And also just to show them as well, you know, because, you know, my parents, they don't do all this stuff now. But, you know, we've come from a background where my parents have done cleaning jobs and all of these different kind of things. I'm sure they won't mind me saying. And so... I feel like they've looked at like the system and authority in a certain type of way, you know, like, I don't know, like a white boss or for example, they've always looked at him in a certain type of way or her in a certain type of way. And it was so important for, for, for me to elevate them and elevate, you know, as much as I can, you know, they already elevated people, they're kings and there is a king and a queen there. Do you get what I mean? Without a doubt. Do you get what I mean? But it was very important for me to, show them that same sort of face that they'd seen in their life after emigrating, but in a different capacity, someone that was coming and giving them a glass of champagne and saying, wow, your son's amazing. And like, how else can we facilitate him and what he's doing and all of that? For me, it was so important. And I feel like, yeah, it's benefited them as well, you know, which for me is, it makes this dream even more of a dream because if I was the only person to benefit from the situation, um, I don't. I don't think I would feel as fulfilled and as um, accomplished as I do now. How important is it for you that that success is shared about that it's that it's felt by everybody that's been in and around you? Because success is sometimes seen as a very singular thing for that person. There's definitely elements that I felt like they weren't for everybody. Do you get what I mean? Because we we see it time and time again in our community. There's almost like a like there's a pot of emerging talent that is kind of like plentiful, right? It doesn't run out. But sometimes because of like the way we've all came up and the sort of lifestyles that we've been around, 
sometimes it can be the people around you that can, you know, as quick as your opportunity comes, they can make your opportunity go. And I feel like there was certain aspects of getting into the music industry, being a musician and whatnot, that I, I didn't want everybody to have access to straight away. So, for example, when I first got a record deal, I had a family friend that was working at the Sunday Times or one of these kind of broadsheet newspapers. And they were like, oh, you know, we want to kind of do like a into the home of Tiny Temper. We want to come and interview your mom and your dad and your siblings. And we want to just take a picture of the inside of your house. And I was like, nah, I was like, nah, there's no way that this is going to happen. Because at that time, a lot of people won't know it. But when I first got signed, you know what it's like, you're a lot young black boy from the community. I was always someone who was doing music, but you know, you're keeping up with everybody else that's on the roads and whatnot. One of your friends might be shot in, one of your friends might be, you know, coming out of prison for something else. And so when you're the one that gets that opportunity and makes it out, obviously you're like a cash cow. I used to have people like waiting outside my mom and dad's house and like golf GTIs and blacked out cars and all of this weird stuff, like for a, for about two or three years, like after uh, I got signed and I started releasing music and then it kind of died out for a bit. But I always remember being like, as soon as I expose my family into this world, there's every opportunity that they might not be able to handle it. What happens? I'm not saying my parents would ever do that, but what happens if someone says, oh, we want to pay you 20 grand to do this or we want to pay you 40 grand to do this and I'm not around to be like, don't do it. Do you get what I mean? What, what, what happens there? So I was very wary of that kind of side of it but everything else I felt like it was so important for them to see and to witness because you know there's always that age-old kind of thing of oh you've changed man you're not the same person as you were before and I feel like because my parents were with me on the journey from the very beginning they still know who their son is do you get what I mean yes I have changed and I have evolved as a person but I feel like they've kind of been there throughout the whole process you know so yeah I think one side of it I definitely didn't want them to be around, which was the element of fame and money and everybody wanting a piece of you. But them to kind of see the journey and to see the progress I was making, it was very, very important for them to see that. And how did you get your first break into the business? Boy, at the beginning, like, it, it, dep- it depends on what you would say was a, was a break. Because, like I said, at the very beginning, people were paying to get to, to get their music heard, you know, uh, whether that was pirate radio stations, you know, you go and you pay a, a subscription fee of like 20 pounds or something every time you go on. And weirdly enough, look at the psychology of it. You know, now artists are getting paid millions for their music. That was for me, one of my big breaks because, you know, one of the first radio stations I went on pirate radio stations was like a deja vu or, um, or mission control or Rinse FM, it was one of the like main three, or Heat FM, it was one of those. And you could only be of a certain ilk of rapper and MC to be in that vicinity. So at first I went with some guys from my area and, and we called we were called New Brand Flex, you know, big up Saskila, big up Boya, big up P. Some of those guys are still doing bits and bobs in the music industry now. Big up Braggs, Braggs has got Fruits and Roots now that is doing really, really well in the music industry as well. And then I got recruited into the Aftershock like collective, but in, with Terra Danger and Flash and all of those guys. But then I was a part of the Aftershock Youngers, the Juniors, because at the time I was only like 16 or something. So for me, that was my first big break. And then I would say after that, getting onto Channel U again, which I had to pay for, that was, that was another for me as a kid, like, wow, like I'm, it's on TV, guys, look. Um, and even at the time, people were cussing it. People were like, oh, yeah, but it's Channel U. It's not like real TV. Do you know what I mean? But for me, that meant everything. So I would say that those two things were my first big breaks. And weirdly enough, I had to pay for it, man. And at what point did you think it was going to be possible for you to have a real career in the music industry? After the Channel U stage, there was like the likes of Tinchy Strider, the likes of Chipmunk, the likes of N-Dubs. And they kind of went through that infrastructure as well, obviously, Tinchy Stradden and Chipmunk were were from the grime world, though, you know, authentically from that world. And then they started getting record deals, man. They started getting record deals. And there were people who had been signed before that, like like a Dizzy and a Kano. But I would see them as, like, people of, like, an older generation to me. Do you get what I mean? So when it happened, and obviously So Solid Crew, when it happened, I wasn't old enough to understand 
like how that worked. One day they were just on TV and then Dizzy was on tour with Justin Timberlake and doing Glastonbury. You know I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't old enough to understand it. But with Chipmunk and with Tinchy, I was, I was old enough to understand. And then they started getting record deals. I think Tinchy was with Ireland at the time. I think Chipmunk would have been with Sony. And, you know, they were getting checks, like big checks. Or at the time, what I thought was a big check. Do you get what I mean? So you would see, oh, this person got 300 grand for their record deal. And then they went and got another 300 grand for their publishing deal. You know, what everyone needs to realize at that time, I'd never even seen 10 grand or 15 grand. That was probably as much as I'd seen from whatever I was doing at the time. So this was a life-changing amount of money. Life-changing. Like, wow, this is like 10 million pounds. Do you get what I mean? That's, <laughs> that's what it felt like. That's what it felt like. And then, and then obviously, you would see their lifestyle change. You'd see they'd get the tour manager. They'd start moving around in the Viano. Do you know what I mean? They'd, they'd have the guy that was helping. Their show looked different to all our shows now. They'd have a, a backdrop. They'd have lights. They'd have... So it was like, rah, they were becoming stars. They were becoming pop stars. And um, yeah, for me, that was the first real kind of instance I'd seen of like being elevated from just a rapper and just an MC to, you know, an actual artist proposition and like a pop proposition. And then that's when I started to believe that rah, you know, if it could happen to them, you know, like I said, I was always constantly analyzing myself, analyzing the game. And I was like, if it could happen to them, I can do this as well. And I could do this just as good, if, if not better. And then, you know, lo and behold, we were kind of running around for ages, waiting outside Radio 1 at the time, giving our demos out, you know, just doing the typical thing. CDs were very big back then. So dropping off our CD, it would, would like be roaming up and down Kensington High Street. Just anyone that looked like they were in the music industry, giving our CD to them. And no one wanted to sign us, bro. That was the reality. No one wanted to sign us. No one gave 10 shits about us, bro. So then I, I, I started getting frustrated for a bit. And then that's when, you know, Dumi, myself, we set up the infrastructure of Disturbing London. He's like, all right, cool. We're going to do this. Don't worry. We'll, 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 we, we will do this at a record label level. Do you get what I mean? Your videos, he was funding all the videos at the time and everything. And then he just cut me in on the business, on the actual like label business. And then after he was like, we're going to just do this as good as them. We're going to print up 10,000 albums of your first mixtape. And then we're going to get it popping. By us doing that, when we realized that no one wanted to sign us, that got the attention of some people. Like, rah, you know, these guys are trying to distribute 10,000 records at the time. They've got it in HMV. They're doing this. And I made this mixtape, which was called Hood Economics. And I basically sampled all of my favorite UK acts. But it wasn't just like rap or grime, because I've never been one of those people who felt just confined to that sound. Like, for me, I've always felt like a lot of rappers in the UK were trying to emulate American rappers. And so for me, I feel like we have a different sound, a different history. And so I was always trying to incorporate some of those elements from our history into the music. So I was sampling like Lily Allen and Blur and all of these different types of people, Coldplay, I don't know, like all, all of this different sort of stuff. And then that got the attention of some labels. And then, yeah, then the rest is history after that. So let's talk about that history. I mean, Pass Out, of course, was a seminal moment, not just for for you, but for black music in the UK. Apart from the commercial success of that, Tiny, one of the things that I know that you struggled with around that time was the pressure that that brought on you and how you were able to handle that. And I'm really interested to hear more about that and more about how, when, what pressures that you found at that time and how, and how you kind of got yourself over that, over that point and dealt with it. To be honest with you, bro, I just felt like at that time, no one even thought Pass Out was going to go into the chart. Like, there was no... You know, there was no metric. It's not like back then we had YouTube where you'd be like, oh, this is... Yeah, we did have YouTube, but it wasn't like that. You know what I mean, you couldn't look at the metrics and measure what was going to happen. It wasn't, it wasn't like that at all. So no one knew that the record was going to do what it was going to do until like about a week before. When it went straight in at number one, like I said, I'm a very prayerful, spiritual person. I've grown up in that sort of family. So immediately I was like, this is a God-ordained thing, yeah? And I guess that confidence of believing that it wasn't just by my power or like some record label's power made me be like, God wants me to do this. <laughs> like, that's kind of like what was in my head. This is God. God wants me to do this. And like a lot of the conversation around Pass Out 
was very important too. Like when me and Labyrinth were making the record at that time, UK, especially black artists, were not dominating the charts in the UK. It's just as simple as that. It was either white pop British artists, yeah, or indie bands, rock bands that were white, or it was American artist propositions. Do you get what I mean? People that had, I don't know, they were getting released by a UK label, but they were massive star in America. And so their album or their single would just always go to number one, like a Beyonce or someone like that, yeah? Once Pass Out went to number one, I was just like, in my mind, I was like, forget the money, forget what all of this kind of means, yeah? Which, to be honest, I probably should have been thinking about that stuff more. But because I was like, I'm with my older cousin, I trust him to a certain degree, yeah? Now, we've got a song in a num- like that's number one in the chart. I just can't fall off because there was too many people. Do you get what I mean? And I'm not, I don't want to drag people under the bus, but you know, and, and, and for the record, one number one single, any chart position, any release is enough for you to be happy for all your life, in my opinion, because it's an achievement within itself. But you know, within British culture, we're kind of cynical people, aren't we? We like to kind of like laugh at people. Do you get what I mean? Or we like to go, ha, ah, you know, like, he thought he was going to do this. Look at him now. Like, that is just the nature of our culture. I didn't make it like that. It's just how it is, yeah? So I just thought that after Pass Out, I was never going to achieve another one, number one hit again. And I was just going to become a one-hit wonder. And then all this thing that turned into success and turned into, like, a pivotal moment for Black artists. You know, it was a Black producer from East London. It was a Black rapper from South East London. Yeah, I mean, both Black boys, same age, both Black managers. It was very, very Black, organic thing. Something that was revered and seen in that way would just turn into a joke over some years. Do you get what I mean? And people would, I don't know, fucking Keith Lemon would come and just... Do you know what I mean? <laughs> do you know what I, mean? I don't know. What, I, I, didn't know. So I was just like, I was just like, you know what? I cannot fall off. And that was the pressure that I put on myself. And I just, to be honest with you, because I haven't really gone into it that much, I think I just like shut myself off from the world and I put myself in like, any any kid that like watched Dragon Ball Z that might be listening to this, yeah, there's a thing in Dragon Ball Z called the hyperbolic time chamber, yeah? Basically, it's when the fighters, they go up into space and then they're in some chamber where there's like lower gravity. And so basically they're training in there and then they can just become like a superhuman, like they get superhuman ability, abilities. That's kind of what I did for like the first four years of my career. I was like, I don't want to see no one. I don't want to get too distracted. I'm just going to, if it isn't like Dumi or like some close people, my family, my mom or my dad, his mom, his dad, couple of my friends, I don't want to see you. I don't, I don't, I don't want anything that's going to distract me off of like, the trajectory that I need to go because I need to be the most successful because if I'm not, then I'm just another guy that just came and fell off and I need to turn this into something more than what people think it can be. And so that was the pressure that I put on myself and that pressure, you know, made diamonds, essentially. It did. That's just a fact. Do you think you placed more pressure on yourself than, than was being placed on you by those outside within your peer group? My outside peer group at that time was, like I said, Dumi, probably my parents, my siblings, um, a couple of my friends from school. One of my friends at the time, it was crazy. One of my friends at the time, he was in the Navy. He lost it. He had like a temporary moment of insanity and he ended up picking up a rifle, shooting his commander. He killed his commander like instantly. And then he shot the second in command and then the second in command um was injured yeah and this is like one of my best friends at school so as soon as this happens yeah remember tabloids are massive at that time do you know what i mean sun newspaper daily mail so they're all on me bro they're all on me like and my friend was white as well do you know what i mean but they were all on me they're like okay you know a uh, guy in the navy murders um his commander which is obviously like in british that's that's crazy like that's crazy shit he's he went to the same school as tiny He's trying to be a rapper like Tiny. We found rap lyrics in his thing. Google it. It's all there. But then I just I just immediately became scared of the world. Like, immediately. I was just like, flipping hell. They're going to try and destroy me. They're going to try and destroy my family. This is like, before it even can go anywhere, they're going to try and do something. And that's why, again, I said I was wary of, like, my parents being too comfortable in this world. I felt the pressure all around me. Do you get what I mean? I felt the pressure to do right by D. 
I felt like even though he'd always wanted to be in the business, I felt like I saw what he'd invested in in me and I saw the belief he had in me. And I always have to be real. Do you get what I mean? There, there, was, there was things, our relationship will always be deeper than music, regardless of the ins and outs of music and our music business. Like, I'll always have a kind of like love for him because at that time, like I said, before it wasn't that common for you to see someone who was slightly older than you but achieving things he had a house with with his with his um business partner at the time they had a house they had things going on they were trying to create business and he was like yeah bro just take a key to my house like i already had a nice house but i was again the oldest of like four siblings and my parents are in there so he just gave me that kind of feeling of a bit of freedom like here's my key you got me he'll come and pick me up from my college and his bmw and i'll just be like yeah man so when everything started to work like his level of hustle i was just like you know what we need to be the biggest thing and I can't let this guy down. Maybe I should have been thinking of other things, maybe. But as a 21-year-old, 20-year-old kid at the time, I was just like, I need to like do right by this guy because he's done right by me up until this point. So that pressure, I felt it, bro. Whether or not it was actually planted on me or placed on me, I felt it. And then again, you're going into a business where all of your executives and the people that are signing the checks and stuff, they're white. Do you get what I mean? And that's the, that's the fact, especially at that time, they're white. And we were coming out of an age and an era of like indie music and all of these kind of things, bands. And I just felt like, oh, you're just going to think you're just another black boy and they're just going to just dispose of you and discard you. And we've all had highs and lows. I've had highs and lows in my career, but the come down is, is, it can be painful. For me, I'd rather get as high as I can and then feel some sort of come down than to be coming down and then... Because, like, you, you, we know the industry is ruthless, do you get what I mean? And we know that once you don't have any equity or you're, like, some has-been artist, no one gives a fuck about you and they'll really tell you about yourself and they'll really make you feel it. And I think the fear of that, seeing people who, you know... When I got signed, my A&R had my picture on his um, desktop. I don't know if it was for real or for not or because he knew I was walking in. But there was all this kind of love that he felt of like, yeah, you're doing well. You're the, you're the goose. You're the you're the yeah, you're the boy. You're the boy. <laughs> so I just didn't want to let anyone down. Maybe I should have looked at other things as well at the same time. But I, I think I put all of my energy into making sure that I was a stellar kind of success. Did you find that you had any problems in terms of creative restrictions or the pressure you placed upon yourself in trying to maintain the success you had as you went when, when you were making music? I, I didn't really feel like I had any issue with creative restrictions. I felt like, because here's the fact, isn't it? Like my parents are not in the music industry. Like a lot of these artists that I've met, especially artists from slightly like, you know, slightly more affluent backgrounds or whatever. Lots of these guys, their parents were in entertainment. They, 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 they went to some sort of like certain type of school, whether it was a private school or they went to like a music kind of school. I was the opposite to them because those guys have probably studied that like, oh, you know, the best artists kind of came around. They stuck to a sound. They did this, they did that. With me, I'm just like fucking hell. Like every producer wants to work with me. Every producer. So what am I going to do as a black boy that's come from South London? I'm going to work with every producer, bro. I'm going to work with every single producer because prior to that, I was working in my bedroom off of like some dead MP3 that wasn't my beat, that was nothing to do with me. It was from probably America or somewhere like that. So you're telling me that all of these producers want to work with me, all of them from dubstep music, from pop music, from house music, from they all want to work with me. Bruv, if anything here, yeah, I want to work with them. And remember, I, I, I'd always been thinking on a business level. I want to get cuts with them. Do you get what I mean? I want to I wanna expand my portfolio as a songwriter. Do you get what I mean? Because beyond all of this, I'm a rapper, but like, I'm not just, I don't just listen to rap music. Do you get what I mean? I listen to all sorts of music and I appreciate all of that music. So if anything, there wasn't any creative restrictions. There was a, there was, there was an opening of creativity that, you know, when I first made the song with Swedish House Mafia, I'd never met them before. I'd never heard of them before. As soon as somebody said to me, oh, these are like three of the most prolific DJs from house music, from Sweden, I was like, say no more, I want to do it. That's it. Like, I, I want to be able to tell my kids, oh, you see this great artist that's got 
10 platinum plaques are. I've worked with them and I got a platinum plaque with them as well. That's always how my mind was working. So, yeah, I didn't have any creative restrictions. I felt like there was a pressure after a while, you know, that I think a lot of rappers have, which is, are you keeping it real? Are you sticking to your sound? Are you sticking to your origin of where you've come from? But the fact is, and, and I dare anyone to question me or tell me any different, when it comes to our sounds, our sounds are a combination of lots of other sounds. Do you know what I mean? It is. It just is a fact. We're taking influence from house music. We're using the same software. If you think of Ableton or Fruity Loops or whatever, we're using the same sounds as Martin Garrix uses for his house music. Do you get what I mean? I've seen Martin Garrett's produce and I've seen Hargo Productions produce. That's a producer that I've signed that's just made Loading for Central C and Ypre for Millions and all of these guys. I've seen them both produce. They're using the same stuff. They're doing the same thing. Do you get what I mean? But it just comes out different on the, on the, on the back end. So um, there was a pressure there, but I, I never let that pressure affect me because I, I did feel that there was a crabs in the, there's always been a crabs in the barrel mentality or coming from where we've come from, which is if you don't do something that I don't understand, then you're foreign. It's alien to me. You're like a sellout and you're doing something over there. And I was never going to let that hinder me from my journey and my end destination of where I saw myself. There's an amazing catalogue of music and hits, Tiny, that people may or may not, may not know about. But also there are some, also some other incredible collaborations which just goes to show the breadth of you as a musician and as an artist, being able to gather in all of those things and also looking outside of just what people would think would be your sound or your world. So it'd be really nice if you kind of talk about people you work with and, and the hits you've had outside of that. So post Pass Out, I worked on quite a lot of records with Labyrinth on that first album. He was quite instrumental to, to you know, just the soundscape and the sonic of the album. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, I've had hits after that with Kelly Rowland from Destiny's Child, from with Ellie Golden, with uh, Swedish House Mafia, with uh, Calvin Harris, with Cheryl Cole. Don't forget KTB. KTB, yeah, KTB. It's an extensive list. Yeah, it's an extensive list. Uh, Zara Larson, that record with Zara Larson, that was produced by a producer I signed at the time, Nana Rogues, who then went on to have a success with Drake, again, success that I was involved in as well. Like, loads, loads of people, man, who I, I, at that time, I, you know, I jumped on a couple, like a Nas remix with Damian Marley. It's mind-blowing when you look back, when you look back on it. Yeah, there's so many. <laughs> One of the things that we try to know on the Did You Know podcast is not talk to artists per se, because we believe that art, everybody knows the artist story, but the, the one thing that's really interesting about you, Tiny, aside from your artist career, is, is the fact that you've always been very, very, very keenly involved and you've understood the business and you've broadened your sense of being just an artist into, into different areas. And one of the most enduring aspects of your time in, in the business has been Disturbing London and the incredible relationship that you and Dumi Barota have together and what you've been able to achieve. Tell us a bit about Disturbing London and about the aims and its ambitions when you guys first got together and how that's transformed over the past 10 to 15 years. So basically, when we first started, like I said, you know, it was me and Dumi thinking, shit, no one's signing us. Let's just do everything to a record label standard, but with our kind of budgets, but with that kind of level of, you know, finish and polish. And so that's kind of what we set out to do after that. You know, after doing that with myself and then getting into a record label label situation, we wanted to do it with a, with a few other acts. So we ended up signing uh, Sasha Keeble at the time. We ended up signing All About She, who ended up producing something with Calvin Harris as well. And then, yeah, we were just trying to basically achieve the same thing with them. And then slowly but surely, what I was doing within Disturbing London, you know, I, I basically had become this pop proposition and we were basically competing with any sort of artist within the UK, black, white, in the band, not in a band, when you look at the, the metrics of it, do you get what I mean? So I guess there was a lot of focus there. And then I think Dumi started expanding on his uh, music management kind of like side of things. So I had quite a good relationship with Jesse J at the time. And then through that relationship, um, I was able to kind of intro 
Dumi to Jesse in that kind of capacity. And then he started to manage Jesse J. Then he had always had his sights on Africa as well and wanted to be able to bring an act from Africa and break an act. And so he literally went over, got WizKid, who today is now one of the you know biggest, most celebrated um, African acts in the world. And when I got him and brought him down for his first couple shows and ended up managing him. And obviously now you see where Wiz is today. Then we just continue just signing more and more artists, more and more artists developing on that. I think Dumi went off and did kind of like expanded into his kind of publishing world. And then as I started to get a little bit more older and kind of just find my feet a little bit and stop kind of, remember I said I put myself in that kind of like tunnel vision. I'm not going to worry about anything else. I'm just ready with the, with the, with the bat. You throw me the ball. And that's all I was doing, literally. That's all I was doing, yeah. As I started to kind of like start, I don't know, I guess kind of like watching D, but also seeing what else was going on in the music industry and just just starting to think a little bit more. Then I kind of diversified. I set up Imhotep and kind of got my publishing arm as well. And we collaborate together sometimes on certain things as well. But that's basically it. It's, it's just like an ever-expanding thing. Then we started getting into brands. And I know Dumi's kind of going into brands a little bit deeper now with his relationship because we're still, you know, one of the only acts that have been able to call all these relationships with the likes of Cartier and Audemars Piguet, Mercedes-Benz. Uh, JBL, and you, you name it, you know, from the highest upper echelon of brand, you know, all the way down to the kind of like entry level, we've been able to court relationships with all of these guys. And that's pretty much it, man. That's in a nutshell, that's it. With all the work that you guys have done in terms of working very closely and aligning yourself with brands and doing brand partnerships, Imotech Publishing, with Dummies Publishing, reaching out into different continents, bringing other artists in, really expanding a management and portfolio in a way that's been unusual and innovative. Do you see yourself as a pioneer? A hundred percent. A hundred percent I do, man. And I see Dummy as a pioneer. Um, I feel like there was quite a few pioneers at that time. And I feel like ultimately we all still are learning and have been learning off of each other. You know, we'd see someone maybe at that time when we were just trying to shop around and get a deal, do something. And then just through time and through kind of understanding what that was, we'd be able to kind of innovate beyond that, if that makes sense. But do I see myself as a pioneer? I mean, I see myself as lots of things. And I, and, and I think I've learned over time to kind of embrace that kind of pioneer outlier term like a little bit more. Because if you don't, then who, who is essentially like, and, 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 and I appreciate all of your kind words, but yeah, I still think that we're in such a kind of grassroots stage of like black music in the way it's recognized now. Like in the UK, we're still at the early days and grassroots stages. So there's still so much more to come and so much more innovation to happen. But in terms of like where we are now and where it's going, most definitely, most definitely. And I know that there's a whole slew of tarnished career that's further down the road and still for you to march on to, but you've had three top 10 albums, seven number one singles, amazing success, Tiny. What's more important to you though, being an artist or being the businessman? I think in my heart, being the artist is always going to be the most important thing. But I've seen, as, as an artist, you can really get exploited. You can really get exploited. you get what I mean? And I just feel like coming from where we've come from, and that's something that I definitely want to be able to um, have a hand in more and facilitate more, just in terms of like the education around being an artist and getting your business right and, you know, finding the right sort of lawyer for you, finding people who you're going to be able to invest your money with that you can trust and, you know, in a way that's, that you understand it, especially the sort of artist and, and the age that you're kind of like picked up at, you know, whether it's that 17-year-old, 18-year-old, 19, 20, 21-year-old, you can really get exploited. And I feel like, Seeing that and learning that has kind of made me like fear. Sometimes I, I fear for some artists is probably the best way to describe it. I fear for some artists because, you know, most artists are thinking with a certain side of their brain. Do you know what I mean? It's all about the talent. It's all about proving something to your peers, to the world. And some people look at the very end of it and they're fucked. Do you get what I mean? They have nothing to show for it. They don't own anything. And for me, that is very fucked up. 
But in saying that, I guess that is what kind of motivated, you know, from the very outset, you know, I've always been business kind of like minded, but that kind of furthered my curiosity in wanting to learn the business and understand the business more. And I look at people like Jay-Z and Diddy and I hope to God that like, you know, Obviously, I want to do it my own way. I'm a British person. I'm, I'm under no pretense, or false pretense that I'm like them or anything like them. But in my own way, I look at people like that and I feel like that is the sweet spot. Being able to be respected as an exec and to have all of the knowledge as an exec and the network as an exec, but to still be able to get on the stage, do your thing and have records that really touch people's souls and change people's lives in a way that not that many people understand, you know, when certain people message me about written in the stars and what that did for them, or my song with J. Cole and Wretch, for example, and what that did to them, you know, which is on a mixtape, there's nothing that can quantify that. There's no amount of money. There's no executive position that can ever give me the feeling that that one direct message gives me. But at the same time, as a black man in a pool of ever emerging black talent, I feel like it's important for me to be, it's just as important for me to go down this route of being an exec as well. I don't want to be the black face handing out the white deal. Do you get what I mean? I don't want to be that person or the, or the black face that's do, doing what, doing exactly what the, the white man has done to black acts, but just with a different face, just with a different hand. I don't want to do that. Do you get what I mean? As an artist, you know, I want to be able to implement change, which is permanent, which, you know, as an, certain things I felt as an artist, you know, now that I get to be an exec as well, for the artist that I'm looking after or I'm around, you know, never letting some of those things happen to them. So, for example, you know, one of the artists that I've just done a deal for, and it was nothing to do with us, you know, I felt like they, they are, the home for that artist would be better away from us, do you get what I mean, just because of conflicts and all of these kind of things. But the deal that I went and negotiated for them, just on, on a, with me, with my management hat on, I made sure that, you know, everything got licensed to them. They had a production deal within them for themselves and all of their records are licensed to them and they're going to get back all of their rights just directly to them. And I remember when we were negotiating the deal, a lot of people were like, no, 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 no. And literally the sticking point and the reason why it seemed to have gone through is because they were like, Tiny's an artist. Do you get what I mean? Tiny's an artist. Tiny has his own label. So there's no way that he's going to budge on this point because he fully understands. Do you get what I mean? He fully understands the implications of it. And so for me, that's one of like my proudest moments. It, it, even though I've had like more musical kind of like prouder moments in the last couple of years, that's been one of my proudest moments because if that artist gets it right, they're going to be very rich, very successful. And I feel like that's why execs that are that look like us and that are like us need to be in the building, you know, need to be uh, across the contracts that we're handing out to this next generation of artists because we might be able to change their lives for the, for the better. In a nutshell, I love being an artist, but I feel like where we're at musically and the way things are for musicians at the moment is still so important to have that executive head. How much do you think the power dynamic has shifted for black artists in the past decade? I mean, you'd have seen it at the front end being the catalyst for that and to where it is now. What do you think the major differences are from when you when you were at your peak to where these guys are now? In terms of like the music industry, the UK music industry, there's a load more kind of like black execs in and, and black people just in some amazing positions. So I guess when you're walking into these buildings now, you're not just feeling like the odd one out anymore, which is great. Lots of people who we all kind of started at the same time and came up in the ranks. I was MC and maybe she was on the radio or he was doing something else. And now they're occupying some amazing roles. And I would say that, like you said, I think we were one of the trailblazers of it, but there's a lot more kind of an understanding of retaining your rights, putting out your music first and building up your business and then maybe going to a label via, you know, going to meet a label too early, if that makes sense. It's a lot easier now for you to be an artist, go and get yourself a distribution deal somewhere, put out your music, build up your uh, portfolio of records, of catalogue, of of rights, and then go and do like a real actual business deal with one of these record labels. I feel like there's a lot more younger artists who are now going and doing that. I feel like we have the system now to be able to do that. You know, when we first started, 
there wasn't any Spotify or anything like that. People weren't getting paid monthly from their streams. Do you get what I mean? It just wasn't happening. So I feel like now, because of just technology and where the industry has evolved to, it's a lot easier for an artist to be generating income on their own, building up their own business. And then when it feels right, if it ever feels right, they now can go and do um, a business deal with a bigger partner or like a major partner. And I feel like that's one of the biggest differences, but it means that there can be more artists, even at a grassroots level that are operating, that are releasing music, getting their records into the top 40, if not the top 100, being able to tour off of their own backs by just getting, you know, like a booking agent and a promoter and they're on their way. Do you get what I mean? And they're able to sustain you know, and earn a living off of music versus back then, you know, you had to be in almost like a major record deal situation to be able to fully earn a living as a black artist, I would say, or black rapper within the UK music. With that in mind, how important is it for you to be there to guide the next generation of artists that are coming through? I think it's so important. I think it's pivotal. And we're a very cynical kind of like, population of people and society you know there's lots of people that i've tried to help and people have thrown it back in my face you know what i mean i'm not gonna lie there's some people that i've tried to help and they might think i'm trying to finesse them or i'm trying to take something from them or i'm trying to do you get what i mean sometimes it's weird isn't it when you're trying to help someone and you're trying to be transparent they still think sometimes you're trying to screw them over do you get what i mean but in saying that you just have to keep plodding on mate and hopefully you know, the success and the achievements will speak for themselves and we will just continue to evolve as a kind of marketplace for music. We'll become more savvy and there will become more people like me and then it won't be that foreign or that kind of like weird, like raw, you know, dealing with him, but he's a rapper, that's kind of weird. But I feel like it's so important for me to be around and I feel like we're just about to see the Diddy's and the Jay-Z's and the you know, these type of characters um, within the UK music. And I'm just hoping to God that, you know, people are already starting to see me in that light because that is what I'm trying to achieve. And I'm trying to achieve it not just for myself, but for the betterment of UK music and for the longevity of Black artists who want to be artists, full artist propositions and have 10 plus year careers in, in music. So at the end of the podcast, Tani, we always ask some really quick-fire questions. So what are your main ambitions, short-term and long-term? For me, I just want to keep on building my amazing catalogue. I, I want to keep that sweet mindset that I've always had of just trying to work with some of the best artists and best musicians and best songwriters, because ultimately, for me, this is a game of music. And I feel like the best of where UK music and black talent can go has not even been seen yet. We're still on the precipice of where it could really be. What is your biggest regret in the business? I would say, honestly, is like having too much blind faith. Yes, I needed that kind of blind faith and trust to, to achieve something that hadn't been done before. I needed to be a bit eccentric and like, what, let's run into the fire, yeah? All right, cool, I'm going to run into the fire. Like, let's go. You know that ones, but I think too much of it can come up, can can be naive. Do you get what I mean? And if you've got like blind faith, is cool. But when it turns into naivety and just assuming that things are okay just for the sake of it is, when really this is a business, everybody's trying to make money. That is probably one of my only regrets. Do you get what I mean? And and earlier because I feel like now I'm very much the blind faith is there, but there's no naivety. What's the proudest moment in your career? I'd say one of the proudest moments in my career was probably being asked to perform at the Olympics um, and represent my country. And I know there was a, a plethora of acts that were performing at that time, but to, to be exposed to that audience of like about a billion people, to be performing with like some of the most legendary UK acts like Queen and do you get what I mean? The Spice Girls came back for that shit. And I, and I just feel like it's one of those things that might be like a once in a lifetime thing, isn't it? So I would say that was one of them. What piece of advice would you give to yourself if you were just starting out now? I would just say that things in your community and in your things in black music and where black music is going to go is it's only going to get better and bigger and more exciting in this country. So brace yourself. Be ready. Be prepared. Have your blinkers. Don't just be so tunnel vision 
be ready, be open to all of it, like, and, and, and embrace all of it. Even though I feel like I have, I think I'll just tell myself that more because sometimes it's difficult, even though I do see myself as a visionary, when something hasn't happened before, it's difficult, especially when you are like part of a demographic that's like what, 3.3% 3, 3 of the population. And you think, okay, we're going to make all this change and generate all of this revenue for the economy. And we're going to do all of this kind of stuff. But it's still difficult to believe it is what I'm saying. So I think I would have just said to myself, no, it's actually a fact. It's going to happen. And there is going to be, and I know money isn't the main thing, but there's going to be lots of young black boys and black girls that have big catalog that is valuable and that are, are able to negotiate fantastic situations for themselves and just brace yourself and, 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 and be ready to kind of, get in the mix of all of it. Do you get what I mean? Which is kind of what we were doing and what we have been doing. But yeah, I would just fill myself with that confidence more. And finally, what's your hope for black artists in the 21st century? My hope for black artists is that their, all of their mental health is intact, first and foremost, that they find a way to kind of facilitate their family as well as themselves without that being too much of a hindrance or like a detriment you know it should be a benefit it should be something that propels you forward rather than holds you back that they learn how to invest their money from the very offset do you get what i mean and they have long-term medium to low risk investments to just keep their money growing year on year and year and year and year on year and that they have more people that they can do business with that looks like that, that look like them and that literally have for as much as you can within business, have their best interests at heart. You know, them having long careers and having longevity as artists and brands, at, you know, it, at the forefront of their heart and mind, because I feel like that's very, 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 very important. Tiny, as ever, eloquent, interesting. Thank you for taking time to speak to Did You Know? And we send our best wishes to you, the family, and to the business and we look to catch up again soon thank you definitely Adrian you too bro thank you man I'm Adrian Sykes and that was the Did You Know Pioneers podcast a Downstreet production as always thank you for listening thank you to Tiny Temper for sharing his story also thanks as ever to the Did You Know team Danny D our producer Cass Denton Sean Springer to Ella Ruby on the socials and to 320 for our theme music. Big thanks to Dave Roberts and to Tim Ingham at MBW and to David, Wren and their team over at WX. You'll soon be able to apply to be mentored by the guests of the Did You Know Pioneers podcast. Details coming very soon. Did You Know is available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure that you subscribe to never miss an episode and if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. And look out for our next episode with Sonia Dewan, one of the music industry's top lawyers, and she's sharing her inspirational story. This was Did You Know Pioneers. Until the next time.